Every day on his commute to work, my grandfather would ride the train from Garden City Park in Long Island, and he would go from Long Island to Manhattan, and he would work at a graphic design advertise, uh, in graphic design at an advertising firm. Now, obviously, <clears throat> he's, he was fine, but that didn't stop my mom and my grandmother from worrying. You see, my grandfather, never being one to give up on taking a shortcut or what he per- perceived to be a shortcut, would oftentimes cut across one of the tracks. Well, there's a third rail. Don't step on the third rail. That's where the power comes from for the train. I kind of feel like that this morning with this sermon, if we're being honest about it. Because so much of what we have been building towards gets unpacked here in Micah chapter 6. So I thought, what better way to alleviate my concern about the potential of stepping on the third rail than to talk about a musical? Don't you break into musical when you're nervous? Never mind. Um, It has been called a modern day Romeo and Juliet. Of course, the music set um, by the uh, by the genius Leonard Bernstein, West Side Story was the tale of two seemingly star-crossed lovers, not from different families, but from different gangs. Their love was doomed because one was a jet and one was a shark. And they were on opposite teams. They could never be together because of the gangs that they hailed from. Now, I find this story um, particularly poignant, especially in the present cultural context in which we find ourselves. Um, You will note that I said very early on in this series that I have no desire to speak about things simply because they're the topic of the day or they're being spoken of in the news or it's the, it's the hip thing to speak of. But if we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about justice, we ought to actually know what the Bible says about justice, right? Right? So that, um, that sets up my, 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 my issue, my angst, because the problem for us comes when we as believers assign ethical topics in the Bible and put on them, if I can speak colloquially, a team jersey. Everybody has a team jersey. Everybody has their favorite squad they root for. In the day and age in which we live, especially in our present cultural context, those squads, though it was never designed to be that way in public discourse, can be seen in terms of red or blue, liberal or conservative, socialist or libertarian. 
when things get assigned a team jersey, we can root for the things on our team. But we say boo and nay to the thing that's on the other guy's team because that's the way teams work. We want our team to win. We want the other guy's team to lose. Our team's right. The other team is wrong. That gets complicated because with the exception, perhaps, of a red-letter edition Bible, there are no team jerseys on ethical issues in the Bible. All the words are God's words. All the words, therefore, have import for us. It is improper, then, to ascribe issue to a team. Now, the team playing um, also can get very nasty inside the church because we think we see what team the other person's playing for, and then we ascribe motive to them. We take all of the worst caricatures of people that we've seen wear that jersey. Like, for instance, I can't root for anybody that likes the team Tennessee Volunteers. I'm sorry. I met some people in college that made me not like that team anymore. And so if you root for the volunteers, we're not friends during certain games of the year. Or, for instance, if you root for, I don't know, Alabama, for instance. (laughs) I just have questions, deep questions, right? We do this, don't we? We do this when we hear someone else and we think we see the team jersey of the opposing team, right? Here's how this works. Someone starts talking about a topic that has historically been a harbinger to liberalism in the church. You go, aha, aha, I knew it. A Trojan horse, I tell you. A liberal coming in. Now, the last I checked, your Bible and my Bible don't give us the option of assigning ethics to teams. Because of the profession that I'm, profession's weird. It's a calling, it's a life. I don't do anything else. Because of what I do, I read a lot. I keep my ear to the ground of what's rumbling around both in our little tiny denomination, tiny denomination, y'all, the PCA is tiny, um, uh, much bigger denominations and there's, there's dust-ups happening, right? Because people are starting to talk about things like, like race. And does race still play a part in today's culture? They're talking about justice and talking about care for the poor. And if you remember way on back early in this series, I said that got kind of a bad name, didn't it? Because most of the mainline churches that were forsaking the gospel and the authority of Scripture were the ones that were going into the cities and talking about justice, and the evangelicals went to the suburbs. In fact, right now in the Southern Baptist Convention, there are all sorts of cries going on that there are progressives and liberals taking over the denomination. Who knows, maybe after this sermon there'll be that same cry in the PCA 
that a little tiny PCA church somewhere in the north suburbs of Dallas, a progressive has slipped into the pulpit. We don't know, okay? Here's the point. I don't care about the team jersey. I want to know what does the text say. And if the text says what the text says, then we ought to ask the question, how then should we respond? Okay? That's my only premise. So with that, let's consider God's word. Micah chapter 6. Stand if you would. Let's hear God's word. Would it be, dear ones, that to our liberal friends we are very conservative and to our conservative friends we are very liberal because we don't wear the team jersey of left or right, red or blue. We wear the jersey of Jesus. Hear God's word. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, how have I wearied you? Answer me. For I, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam and the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gagal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it, sound, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow... But not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Beloved, listen. This is God's word, 
And it is absolutely true, and it is given to you this day because he loves you. Let's pray and ask him for help. Father, when Ezekiel preached to a field of dead bones, the words caused the bones to rattle and sinew to come. And then the spirit came to Ezekiel and said, call for the wind. And the wind blew and brought life into dead bones. So Father, this day, as your humble servant preaches to bones with the wind come and blow, bring life. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Be seated if you would. We all packed a lunch, yes? I'm going to try and do an entire biblical theology of justice in 35 minutes. Now you should know that's irony. That's not going to happen. I've chosen 35 minutes so that, and by choosing 35 minutes, that means I can't be exhaustive. If you're on the fence about whether or not I proof texted enough, come hang out with me. We'll grab coffee. We'll go to my office. We'll go through the stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of books on my desk and talk about all the things I didn't say here. Okay? Let's... Let's do this. this. This is a tough chapter because Micah was written like a letter to be read out loud all at once, not a book with chapter markers in it. So the whole chapter hinges on one central idea, which is what God has summoned the people who has he's, he served notice that he's about to hold court and then the indictment is read. The problem is the indictment comes earlier in our text. We'll talk about that in a minute. For this chapter, for this time, we've got to deal with four things. Four things on the outline this morning. We have to talk about what justice is, where does our desire come from to do justice, what's God's indictment against the people, and then finally, how's the verdict carried out? Okay, so that's kind of the way the text moves. We're going to jump around a lot because, again, it's kind of one idea. The Old Testament doesn't exactly go propositionally on us. If you're listening out for stories that I'm going to tell this morning, I want you to listen and try and hang with me. I'm going to try and keep us out of the weeds, but try is the operative term. Try to keep us out of the weeds, okay? For those listening to some stories that I might tell this morning, I want you to listen for box tops for education. I want you to listen to hear about this weird thing called photo albums. And finally, I want you to listen to the conclusion of West Side Story. Okay? So, first of all, what is justice? Let's start there. Micah states it in verse 8 that we are to be a people that do justice and love kindness. And in order to be obedient, we should probably talk about what it is that we're being called to do. Now, I'm going to teach you some language this morning. 
You are all very fortunate. This is going to be like the Rosetta Stone, except not at all. (laughs) The term here that is justice is the Hebrew word mishpat. Everybody say that with me. Mishpat. Okay? Good. The word for kindness is the word chesed. Now, you've heard me say this before, but go ahead and say it with me now. Chesed. Now, if you would kind of wipe your neighbor's um, hair in front of you, just... The word chesed is the word for God's covenant faithfulness. It is his never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. Okay? Micah 6.8 says that we are to act out of what has been first shown to us, merciful love, okay? The ESV renders it, he has shown you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness. Other translations will say to do mercy, Because indeed, it is also God's covenant faithfulness, God's kindness, God's mercy, right? And so it is saying then that what God requires of his people is to thus live out of what he has first done for us. Now, like I said, I'm going to stick really close to the text here. Let's talk about this new word that we learned, mishpat, okay? Mishpat occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament, okay? It occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament. It means essentially that we are to treat people equitably, okay? Leviticus 24-22 warns that Israel should have the same rule of law for the foreigner as they have for the native. Mishpat means that we are to punish or acquit on the merits of the case rather than looking at race or social status or economic status or anything else. But mishpat, justice, is more than just punishment. The word also means to give people their rights. To give people their rights. So we could say that this word means that we should give people what they are due, whether it is punishment or protection and care, okay? In the Old Testament, there was what one scholar called the quartet of the vulnerable, the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament were widows, Orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Okay? So we are to give punishment or care, and especially watch out for the quartet of the, of the, of the vulnerable. Now, this is not just an individual mandate. It is also a societal mandate as well. God loves and defends those with the least economic and the least social power, and therefore, so should we. 
This is what it means then to do justice. But the argument then may come, aha, well, see, there's your problem. Because Israel was a closed country. Israel was a closed country. Israel was a country that was governed not just by God's moral law, not just by God's ceremonial law, but also by specific civil law that was the uh, bedrock of how Israel was going to be formed together, and that can't possibly still apply today. After all, we talk about hanging the Ten Commandments in various public places. We don't talk about hanging Leviticus in public places. Most of us, if we're being honest, when we get to our Bible reading plans, we might make it through Numbers, we don't make it through Leviticus. Or is that just a personal confession of me? Never mind, let's keep going. We'll investigate this further. I want you to consider for a moment as to how God is introduced. That is to say, how is God's character described when God is introduced? I'll quote one place. In Psalm 146, verses 7 through 9, God executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Throughout the witness of Scripture, it is striking how God is introduced as the defender of these vulnerable people. This is what our God does. He identifies with the powerless and he takes up their cause. As one pastor says in his book on this matter, he says, it's hard for us to understand how revolutionary this was in the ancient world. One Sri Lankan scholar calls this scandalous justice. He writes that in virtually all of the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through and identified with the elites of society, the kings, the priests, the military captains, not the outcasts. But here, in Israel's rival vision for the world, look at who God identifies with. It's not high-ranking males, but the orphan, the widow, and the stranger with whom Yahweh takes his stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. So from ancient times, the God of the Bible stood out from the gods of all the other religions as a God on the side of the powerless and of justice for the poor. Think about the, think about the genealogies of Jesus, would you? Look at who is in Jesus' genealogy. Do you see that Jesus is the only one ever in the history of man that got to choose his ancestors? Who did Jesus choose to identify with? Jesus chose to identify with the powerless, 
and with the weak, with prostitutes, with sinners, with rapists and murderers. This is an upside-down way of looking at the world. So if God's character is like this, if God's character is like this, and we're being conformed to be like God, we're also called to exhibit these attributes of God that can be communicated through us. No, we are not going to be uh, in being like God. We're not going to be omniscient and sovereign and any of those things, but to show compassion, to love justice, to be merciful, These are things that God is doing in and through us as he's conforming us to be more like him. But there's there's yet more, right? We have to to really understand this idea of justice. There's yet more. Because there is yet another Hebrew word that can be translated as being just, but is more commonly translated as being righteous. Biblical scholar Alec Moltier defines righteous as those right with God and therefore committed to putting right all other relationships in life. This means that biblical righteousness is inevitably social because it's built on relationships. When we see the word righteousness in the scriptures, we tend to make it private and personal. But here, it is in the Old Testament, where righteousness shows up in the Old Testament, it is considered day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. So what then does, do we do with all of these laws that were specific to Israel? After all, there is no longer a temple that we go to. We no longer bring fatted calves to a temple to offer sacrifices. We instead go to hard eight. Let's consider the words of Jesus. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, that is to make it go away, but to fulfill the law, that is to make it complete. As one biblical scholar stated, every command from the Old Testament reflects principles at some level that are binding on Christians in the New Testament. Even with all the Levitical laws, the coming of Christ, listen, the coming of Christ changes the way that Christians exhibit their holiness and offer their sacrifices, but the premise still remains. It has not gone away. It has been made complete. All right, so now how many, um, how many of, of you are uh, teachers that are going back or have gone back to school? Okay. How many of you are students that are getting ready to go back to school this week? How many of you are parents that are glad to have them out of the house? So in the, in the getting ready to go back to school, we were um, going through some of the, the new things, and someone um, sent out a word that there was a new app 
that we needed to download. Of course there is. There's always a new app to download. Uh, how many of you remember participating in Box Tops for Education? Anybody? Okay. There was some sort of magical thing that happened that you would cut the top of your cereal box off and take that to your teacher, and somehow your school got money. Somehow. I have yet to understand how box tops equal uh, legal tender, but they tell me it's what happens. Well, now, in this newfangled age in which we live, now you download the box tops app. And you scan your receipt. No longer does your children, uh, do your children have to lug in their zip-top baggies full of box tops. Mom and dad just scan the app and somehow, again, magic, the school gets the money. You see, the mode has changed, but the point is the same. The idea that we are to offer sacrifices pleasing to God, the mode has changed. The point remains the same. It isn't that that part of Israel's and our history got wiped away. It's that it got fulfilled. But fulfillment doesn't mean gone. It means it has a new point. So if we believe that justice is still expected of the Christian, that it is relationally oriented in nature, and though I've not had time to cover this element this morning, it is certainly in part systemic. That is, injustice is systemic in nature. The call for Christians is not just to live rightly with God, but with neighbor by tangible acts of righteousness that mirror and reflect the heart of God. So then quickly, how do we get there? This next point is super short, but it's really important to make. How do, where does our desire for justice come from? Look with me at our text now. I've covered one verse so far. This bodes well for the rest of the morning. If you look at our text, the reason we are to act this way is because God first acted this way towards us. He says, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, son of Boar, answered him and what happened. Okay? So, God raised up Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to free God's people from oppression. In Numbers 22, God's people were assaulted again, in particular by a king of Moab named Balak. And God's, God raised up a prophet, Balaam, and who else? A talking donkey to thwart the Moabite forces. But God's people, ever forgetful as they are, and that we are, have forgotten. They have forgotten the way that God has been a part of their story. We forget how God is a part of our story. In fact, if I can make the argument for you, it is realistically that um, our lives are most often oriented, our lives are most often oriented through the grid, through the lens of story. Now, um, our kids 
do not necessarily know the joy of photo albums. Some of you that are scrapbookers are preserving this tradition. But our children do not know what it is to take a camera, shoot a certain number of photos, then take it to the Kodak booth, wait for it to be developed, only to find out that mom had her index finger over the lens of the camera when that one family photo was taken. Nevertheless, the index finger photo makes it in the photo album because it does what? It tells a story, right? We know the picture that should have been there. We see mom's, mom's index finger instead. You see, here's the thing. All of our lives are oriented by story. All of our lives are oriented by some type of story. And here's the deal. If we're the victims of the story... Everyone else is the oppressor. Everyone else is the one doing things wrong to us. It's a lot easier for us to find the enemy outside than the fool within because it's a lot less costly. When I look for the enemy outside, I'm always the victim. I'm never the perpetrator. I'm always the, aggrava- I'm always the aggrieved one. I'm never the aggravator. And if that's the story of our life, when injustice comes to us, when inequity comes to us, we say, God, where are you? <laughs> I guess he's forgotten us. Let's do just like our Israeli, Israeli forebears did and build an idol. Maybe it will satisfy us. What story is the one controlling your life? Is it the story of God's grand rescue and redemption of you? Or is it some other narrative where you are the center of the story and the aggrieved one, the victimized one, and the one who forgets just what it is that God has done? Well, what is God's indictment towards his people? Here's the dramatic court case as it unfolds. And what I'm going to deal with now is the data of the text, both in this uh, point and the next one. I want to talk about how the court of creation has been summoned and the defendant's name. Look at verses 1 and 2. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and will contend with Israel. So what is the reason and the contents that these charges are being served in the first place? So I want to review chapters 2 and 3 and 1. So let's do some broad sweeping review, okay? The court has been summoned. What are the charges? If you remember back in chapter two, we saw that the charge was that God's people have zero regard for uh, in their hearts for the weak and for the poor, okay? That was the charge in chapter two. In chapter three, we saw that everyone from the greatest to the least have power in some form, and yet they have not used their power for the good of everyone. Instead, they have only used their power for their own good and their own enrichment. And finally, in chapter one, 
we see that all of the problems that were to follow were rooted in this one idea, disordered desire. The people of God had become so malformed, so turned in on themselves that this disordered way of living had for them become quite normal. So beloved, let me pause. Does this ring true to you? How much regard do you have in your life for the weak and the poor and the vulnerable? How have you used whatever power you have, whether great or small, to enrich the lives of others? Or has it been power turned in on itself? Has this way of life become so normal and so comfortable that it doesn't seem like anything is wrong at all? After all, we self-justify. We're already doing so much. We're already so much better. Look at how our text continues at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? The question comes, how should we come before the Lord? In other words, what is enough? What's enough so that God gets off my back and says, all right, you're good. You're, you're good. You're good. It's, it's good. We're fine. What's enough that God will be satisfied with us and say that we have fulfilled our obligation? I want, to see, I want you to see how radical Micah's answer was. You could bring a burnt offering. Now, for the Jew at the time, this would have been the most costly because all of the other offerings that you could bring, um, you, all, of all the other offerings, you could bring a portion home, right? So you put your offering on the altar, some of it gets burnt up, some of it you take home and you have dinner. But in the burnt offering, all of it goes. You could bring your very best in verse 7, the best calf, thousands of rams, rivers of oil. You could even bring your child. And all of this was meant to sound absurd to the listener. Because you could bring and give everything that ever meant anything, but if it doesn't crystallize in concrete love for your neighbors, it is all worthless. So I've been reading some of uh, Nicholas Walterstorff's work as a part of my prep for this series, and his quote um, is worth reading at length. Here's what it says. Hang with me. The witness of the prophets is that worship loses its authenticity when those who participate in it do not practice and struggle for justice. Let us allow ourselves then to be surprised, even astonished, taken aback by this. In worship, we sing hymns of praise to God. Why isn't it enough that we do this with awareness and intensity? After all, I was very dialed in to worship this morning. I like the new arrangements. In worship, we ask God to give bread to those who lack it. Can't we mean that with the word, when the words are said, if we mean it, isn't that enough? We pray for God to give those who have nothing something. 
The reason we feel this way is because we've understood worship either as a device for curating favor with God or as an occasion to escape from ordinary life. On these understandings, the suggestion that injustice would bleed worship of its authenticity is just nonsensical. The critique of the prophets is grounded in the conviction that the whole point of worship is to give expression to the commitment of our lives to God. The point of worship is not the performance of certain self-contained actions, no matter how sincere and appropriate those actions are. Worship is for giving voice to life, to lives of faith oriented to God. Justice is an integral component to such a life. This is why worship in the absence of justice does not please God. Instead, it nauseates him. It's so seriously malformed that God finds it disgusting. But let me emphasize that the prophets are not saying merely that God wants justice as well as prayer, mercy as well as praise, love as well as worship. It is not both worship and justice, but rather not authentic worship unless justice. Ooh. Ooh. Now, God says that the people have treasures in their, uh, in their homes that are ill-gotten in verse 10. Scales tipped in their favor, verse 11. Violence in their hearts, verse 12. Beloved, this is you and I as well. This is all of us. So again, if justice is rooted in the character of God and justice is not simply punishment for wrong but is also a, settling, a setting of things right, then dear friends, this ought to stun us that God has not for a holy and righteous God that it may be true that God has not heard our praise because our hearts still remain cold and calloused to those around us. And notice, by the way, I'm not, making a, I'm not making a plea for how justice should be shown. I'm making a plea this morning for the very nature of the fact that it ought to be shown. So then how is the verdict carried out? God says, therefore, therefore I strike you with a grievous blow. You'll eat and not be satisfied. And in verse 15, effectively, we hear this. You're not going to be able to find joy and happiness of the work that you're involved in. I'll not allow you to make this approach to life work well for you. Do you hear God begging for this question to be answered? Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. See, the title of this question, the title of this sermon was, how are we answering God's question? Do you hear God saying, what have I done? What have I done to you? Why is it now that your hearts are so cold and callous to the very things that animate God? 
It is out of God's overflowing love and compassion that he created the world, that he invited us all in to the dance of the Trinity. It is out of God's overflowing love and compassion for the world that God sent Jesus to rescue us from the dominion of sin and bring us back into the fold of the, of the triune life of God so that we would begin to taste and enact now what we will see in fullness then, that is a world set back to right, that is shalom, that is the fullness, that is justice. This is part of God's character. It does not go away. It's not like we're talking about some sort of Old Testament God and some sort of New Testament God. That's hogwash. God does not change. So where then does our hope come from? The end of West Side Story brings with it all of the overtones of Romeo and Juliet. Tony hears that his love is dead and goes begging to be killed as well. But he finds her alive, but it's too late. The trigger has already been pulled. Maria yells to both gangs, brandishing the gun. And she says, see, I can kill now too, because I have hate now too. You all killed Tony. The feud was ended through the recognition of the death that it brought and the life that was lost. There's a great book that sits on my bookshelf. It's called Until Justice and Peace Embrace. And the way that justice and peace embrace, the way that things that have been set wrong are set right is also through a death. Our feud with heaven and God himself deserved us to be marked off as the dead ones. We deserve to die because we had committed high treason against God. And in actuality, if we hear carefully the words of Holy Scriptures, we continue to carry out high treason against those in our neighborhoods and communities by not being broken for them and by bearing their burdens with them. In West Side Story, the conclusion could only go so far. It was only senseless death that could ultimately resolve tension. But in the true story above all stories, the reality of Christ crucified, we have a much grander ending with much higher stakes. Life is still given in the name of love, but instead of death and anger and hate winning the day, resurrection and life and hope instead get the last word. The sentence that was deserved from the verdict pronounced in Micah was laid upon Christ. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow. Jesus was the one stricken for us. Stricken, smitten, afflicted. This verdict was laid upon Christ who took it to the cross and poured himself out. He rose and poured out even more by giving his spirit and nourishing his church through the table and giving them a ministry of reconciliation. Dear friends, he has shown you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice flowing from kindness as you walk humbly with your God. Justice doesn't get to wear a team jersey or a rival gang sign. 
Justice was met at the cross and rooted in God's character. The circumstances are different, but the call remains the same. Embody the heart of God as the heart of God was embodied in Christ for you and for me. What do we do with this? Dear friends, would it be that we would be broken? Would it be that we would be sad? After all, how can God revive us if he first can't confront us? How can God change us if there's nothing in us that needs to be changed? If it's all them out there? Dear friends, the place where we see justice and peace embracing is here at this table where God, the just and the justifier, has himself borne the lash and the rod and invites you and I as beloved sons and daughters to share in a feast with him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.